Welcome to the fourth Sunday in the season of Epiphany. Epiphany is a season dedicated to the discovery of Jesus' identity and mission. The wise men who followed a star from the east kicked off the season of Epiphany when they visited the by then toddling Jesus and worshipped him. In these Zoroastrian stargazers, God demonstrated his intention to reconcile to himself men and women living at the edges of the world through this child. They sought Jesus, saw Jesus, and worshipped him as God and King. Their encounter with Jesus changed them, and they returned to their land different men than the ones who left home following a star in faith. And every Sunday during the season of Epiphany, we are seeking to encounter Jesus in the same way that these men did over 2,000 years ago. We are seeking Jesus in order to see him, to properly worship him as he is, our God and our King, and to leave this place changed, having come here in faith. And it's why we've been beginning our worship during this season by reminding ourselves in the opening sentences that God is able to open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf, and by requesting him to do the same for us. Most of us can hear with our ears and see with our eyes. But we are blind, to the deaf, blind and deaf to the person of Jesus Christ apart from God's intervention. Like the people in our story this morning, we're naturally skeptics, asking ourselves, is not this Joseph's son? And we fail to worship him as he is, the son of God. And so we pray, open our eyes and ears, Father, that seeing and hearing, we might properly worship him as he is. Together, we've been looking at the beginning of Jesus' ministry as it is relayed to us in the gospel accounts. We started with the significance of John the Baptist's ministry, and then we moved on to the baptism and temptation of Jesus. And today, we read about Jesus as he begins his public ministry in Luke 4. Everything up until this point has been a preparation of sorts. And Luke positions the beginning of Jesus' ministry immediately following the story of his temptation. And where does he begin his ministry? But in his hometown, of course, the place he knows best and the place where he is best known. In the two verses immediately preceding our passage, we read that having been led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted, Jesus then returned triumphant in the power of the Spirit to begin his ministry in Galilee. And the pattern of his ministry is laid out for us there in verses 15 and 16. It was his custom, Luke tells us, that every Saturday, Jesus went into a synagogue and he would use the scriptures, the Old Testament, to teach the gathered people about what God is doing through him. And this morning, Luke brings us into the synagogue with Jesus, and he sits us down in the pews to hear what Jesus has to say. And the way that Luke tells the story is a piece of narratival brilliance because he sets the scene in slow motion. This scene in the synagogue is a far cry from the last scene in our passage where we are simply told that Jesus, surrounded by an angry crowd of people threatening to throw him off a cliff, passed through their midst and went away. There Luke provides us with no details of Jesus' escape. Perhaps he shouted, look, a plane, and they looked away and he walked through their midst. We just don't know. Luke doesn't give us the details. 
But here in the synagogue, not in the wrathful confrontation on a mountain peak, is where the real action in our story takes place. So Luke slows the narrative down, and he gives us the details. Every action is captured. Jesus stood up to read, stood up to read, Luke says. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll, and after some searching, found the place he was looking for. It was Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And after he read this portion of Isaiah 61 aloud, Luke tells us that he rolled the scroll back up, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And at that moment, all the oxygen in the room had been sucked out. Everyone was holding their breath. Luke explicitly tells us that the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on Jesus until he finally broke the silence with the declaration that today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And from there, the situation in the synagogue deteriorates. But lest you become distracted by the boisterous fallout from Jesus' actions and prematurely drawn into the latter half of the story, Luke has shown us by the way he has crafted this narrative that he wants us to first linger over Jesus' quotation of the prophet Isaiah. We'll get to the reaction, but first comes Isaiah. Because Jesus' quotation of the prophet Isaiah at the very beginning of his ministry, reveals his self-understanding of his mission. And it is cosmic in its scope. Isaiah 61, if you go back to the prophet, stands at the end of a bleak string of chapters beginning in chapter 56, where the sins of God's people are laid out before them. Their unfaithfulness and their rebellion is presented as evidence before the judge of the whole earth, and there is no doubt that the verdict should be guilty. But in chapter 60, the tone becomes hopeful as the poetry of the prophet begins to tell of a time in the future when God will have mercy on his people and restore them to their former glory. And the imagery is beautiful. Instead of bronze, I will bring you gold. And instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. I will make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteousness. Violence shall no more be heard in your land, devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. And in chapter 61, the passage that Jesus quotes in the synagogue, this glorious vision expands and becomes more comprehensive in its scope, reaching out to you even, those people who live outside the boundaries of ethnic Israel. And Jesus read to the synagogue from Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. The stated audience that Jesus sees himself as coming to save is the poor, which one scholar informs us is not a mere description of economic poverty, but a cipher of those of low status, 
for those excluded according to normal canons of status honor in the Mediterranean world. And this scholar writes, In the ancient Mediterranean culture and the social world of Luke-Acts, one's status in a community was not so much a function of economic realities, but depended on a number of elements, including education and gender and family heritage and religious purity, vocation, economics, and so on. It's thus evident that Jesus' mission is directed to the poor, defined not merely in subjective, spiritual, or personal economic terms, but in the holistic sense of those who are, for any number of socio-religious reasons, relegated to positions outside the boundaries of God's people. And by directing his good news to these people, Jesus indicates his refusal to recognize those socially determined boundaries, asserting instead that even these outsiders are the objects of divine grace. Others may regard such people as beyond the pale of salvation, but God has opened a way for them to belong to God's family. And Jesus further reinforces this expansive definition of those he came to draw into this poetic and glorious vision of peace and salvation when he reminds the synagogue of the stories of Elijah and Elisha at the latter half of our passage, who, although prophets of Israel, were sent to people living outside of Israel, a Lebanese widow in Elijah's case, and a leprous Syrian man in Elisha's. The person living on the fringes and the most ethnic Israelite alike, Jesus came to save. More explicitly, he came to make God's favor known. When Jesus finished reading from the scroll and sat down, Luke tells us that everyone was staring at him. They were staring at him because they knew by memory the next line of Isaiah 61 and they braced themselves to hear it, but it never came. The full verse goes like this. He has sent me to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. But Jesus stopped short of proclaiming the day of God's vengeance. And instead, he rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down after declaring God's favor. His last word was grace, not vengeance. And the synagogue wondered at this, as we should too. His last word was grace. Jesus came to be the messenger of God's grace to the poor, this expansive definition of poor in the world. The Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. But in Jesus, the grace of God took on flesh and blood, and grace became more than mere words, more than a mere proclamation. When Jesus went to the cross for our sin and died in our place, in Jesus, the verdict of God against you has already been issued. You're guilty, but he died. He died, and in him, you will only know God's favor, his grace. The Christian who is grieved by sin need only to look to the cross, need only to look to the the body and the blood of Jesus given as a means of his ongoing grace to be reassured of God's favor. He came to not only make God's grace known, but to make it a reality for you who are guilty. And the only proper response to this is praise and service 
adopting the same mentality towards the poor that Jesus demonstrated in his life and death. But that's not the response Jesus gets in his passage, in this passage, is it? Now, Jesus is met with, with skepticism and hostility. They're filled with wrath. Why is that? Jesus declares that he's come to make the grace of God known, and the crowds respond with, Wonderful, but what have you done for me lately? Jesus knew their thoughts, and he revealed their thoughts in verse 23. They're thinking, Do for us what you did for the people in Capernaum. Heal someone. They're unable to appreciate God's cosmic vision of salvation because they're only considering Jesus in the flesh, in the moment and in their partial knowledge of him as the son of Joseph. There is the initial rejoicing that Luke mentions in verse 22 when they marveled at his words and spoke well of him, but it was actually their their familiarity with Jesus that drove away their wonder. Is not this the son of Joseph? Don't we know him? What have you done for us lately? In this interaction, Luke issues a warning for us who are privileged with with a lot of information about Jesus and live in a city where you can't throw a stone without hitting a pastor. It's a warning about the tendency of the human heart to domesticate Jesus and to consider him cliche because everyone else around you is talking about Jesus. To mistakenly create distance from Jesus because you feel stifled by the Christian culture in which you live. In our sinfulness, it's possible to begin by fixing our eyes on him, to speak well of him, to allow our familiarity with him, or others' familiarity with him, to actually breed apathy, or worse, contempt in our hearts. Is not this exactly what Jesus is saying when he says that no prophet is accepted in his hometown? These were the people who knew him best. They had seen him grown up. They watched him. They probably benefited from his carpentry and yet they rejected him. He's warning us about our own hearts, that we tend to turn familiarity into contempt and rejection. Jesus warns us elsewhere about this tendency of our hearts as well, specifically in the parable of the prodigal son found in Luke 15. While everyone talks about the rebellion of the younger son, who runs away with his inheritance and squanders it on bodily pleasures, there's often less attention paid to the elder son, the lostness of the elder son. The elder son is just as lost as the younger son. It's just that he never left home. He's run a great distance in his heart, despite never leaving his father's house. And his lostness is revealed when he complains about the feast that is thrown to celebrate the return of the younger son. He objects that he's been working in his father's house for years and he's never had a party thrown for him before. And the father reveals the lostness of this elder son in a single response. Son, you're always with me. All that I have is yours. You see, the elder son had through sheer familiarity become blind to the wealth of possessing the father and the joy of living in his house. And he asked the question that we often ask of Jesus. What have you done for me lately? We so domesticate Jesus that his cosmic declaration of grace and his act of reconciliation on the cross is minimized to a fact we assented to years ago, but fail to marvel at every day of our lives. He's always with us. 
And all that is his has become ours. His obedience, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. But through sheer familiarity, we become blind to the wealth of possessing Jesus and the joy of his spirit living within us. And we ask, what have you done for me lately? We focus on the pain of life, the confusion, the loneliness, the anger, And we allow that to make us doubt his love for us. And yet, here is his body and blood given for you, reminding you of the great and cosmic grace of God. The cure for familiarity and apathy is intimacy. Meditating upon the person of Christ in all his glory and daily, hourly, considering what God has done for you in Christ. It is coming back to this table as often as you can, and eating the body and blood of the resurrected Christ given for you. It is committing passages like Ephesians 2 to memory. In Ephesians 2, Paul says, And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who are near. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In other words, you were the poor, but he has made you rich in himself through his broken body and shed blood. If you're not dwelling on that daily, then it's impossible to speak of Jesus with any real joy. And it's impossible to celebrate with the person who comes to faith. You're just ready for them to settle down and get over it. You can't be excited about the Lebanese widow. You can't be excited about the leprous Syrian man. You can't be excited about the younger brother coming home. You can't be excited about your neighbor knowing Christ. Because the cosmic vision of Christ announcing grace and peace to you has grown dim in your sight. A seminary professor once told Pauline, if you lack joy, consider your salvation. The only solution to have joy bubbling under the surface of your loneliness and pain, the only way your soul can be anchored in hope, the only way that you can really rejoice with those who rejoice is to become intimate with Christ. To reassume the posture of those sitting in the synagogue before they open their mouths. Fix your eyes on Jesus and marvel at his gracious words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You were the poor, the captive, the blind, the oppressed. He came for you so that you might go out into the world for others. And here is the reminder of his cosmic mission of grace intended to jar you out of your complacency in Christ. Here is his body and blood for you. Rejoice in him. Rejoice over him. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.